Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, uh, let's dive right into it, shall we? What have you been reading recently? Yeah, I read uh, Mel Brooks's new memoir, uh, All About Me. Uh, so here's my question for you, Ben, before I talk about this memoir. What do you want of a memoir? When you read like somebody, especially somebody who's been in the industry or in any in industry, as long as Mel Brooks has, the famous writer, actor, comedian behind Young Frankenstein and producers and other classics, what do you want of a memoir? Well, I mean, I think the the clear answer is like great stories, like uh, little anecdotes, you know, like a uh, fun sort of things that maybe you don't necessarily know about that person, but just like, uh, especially in an entertainment um, memoir, I'm talking like interactions with uh, other famous people in his field and like, you know, uh, fun little witty behind the scenes stories that maybe weren't uh, widely covered at the time. Yeah, I have very mixed feelings on All About Me. It's an incredibly entertaining book. It reads like Mel Brooks is absolutely sitting down telling you a story. It's his voice. It's the guy, one of the funniest men of all time, who's 95 years old, who's been funnier for longer than people have been alive, uh, just sharing stories. And it is incredibly entertaining until you realize that it doesn't feel complete. I guess, what you, I guess, like you say, what do you, what, what do you want out of memoir? Do you want just good stories or do you want insight and perspective? Because like he has great stories about like the time he met, uh, he, he met John Wayne in the commissary at the studio, trying to convince him to star in Blazing Saddles. There's stories about him brushing shoulders with other famous people, stories about uh, the makings of all his movies. But there's never a point in All About Me where Mel Brooks acknowledges failures like he does, he never mentions the box office receipts for his movies that didn't do well. Mm. He never mentions like negative reviews for his movies that were universally panned. He, the first thing he mentions is his, the first thing he mentions his first wife is is in one paragraph, um, mentioning their divorce. He never mentions meeting her or having three children with her or their relationship. He just mentions things didn't work out for my wife. The first time she's mentioned, uh, he just immediately breezes past all heartache, all suffering, all hardship. Uh, he just. And it's interesting because the stories are really, really fun, but I'm wondering, does would Mel Brooks's memoir have been a masterpiece if he acknowledged, hey, there were periods where things really, really sucked? And he really doesn't. And it's I'm wondering if it's a weaker book for that. Yeah, man, that's interesting because like, you know, how much self-awareness, um, so first of all, self-awareness is a uh, is a tough thing to come by for anybody, especially in um the entertainment field. And especially like you said, I, I feel like because Mel Brooks has been so famous and so revered for so long, uh, that means that he's probably, um, I mean, this is a speculation on my part, but just like the, the fact that he's been such a, a um, vital voice in the industry for so long probably means that he's surrounded himself with some people that, uh, that, <laughs> uh, you know, aren't necessarily going to constantly be reminding him of whatever failures he may have experienced. So it seems like the, the kind of, um, yeah, like self-aware, uh, more somber look at at uh, a person's life might be better told from another perspective instead of that actual person. But I don't know. You're you're I would say far better, 
far more um, well-read than I am. So maybe ha have there been other memoirs of people in, you know, the, the Hollywood realm that have sort of um, structured things in, in a way that you feel like Mel Brooks's uh, memoir may have been may have benefited from? The most famous example, this is an, this is an extreme case, would be uh, The Kid Stays in the Picture by Robert Evans, the 1970s film producer, who's uh, who tells his own story warts and all. He has zero, you know, uh, zero hesitation to explain his drugged out maniac days. Mm. Uh, and I know Mel Brooks didn't have drugged out maniac days, but there clearly are moments of extreme sadness that he breezes past in this book. And I just kind of wish he had lingered on them. I, I wish he had acknowledged that, hey, the way the way to success um, had speed bumps. Or in the case of, um, I guess a good example would be, he spends like 50 pages on the producers, 50 pages on, you know, Blazing Saddles, 50 pages on Young Frankenstein. Once he hits the 80s, though, and his movies start, stop being as good, the chapters get shorter and shorter and shorter up until Dracula Dead and Loving It, the 1996 <laughs> terrible movie. I think he spends like maybe eight eight pages on it. And clearly the movie wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a hit. It wasn't critically well-liked. Uh, it was his last film as a director before he, you know, had his second, you know, wind on stage with the producer's musical. And what he sp spends like a lot of pages because it's all good news. But I just really wanted him this, to say, "Hey, I was, you know, in my in my sixties, my career seemed over. This movie didn't work, and then the producers happened, and I had my second wind." As opposed to, I made this movie, and then another great thing happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're a Mel Brooks fan, this is a must read. It's full of great stories. It really does feel like your favorite uncle is sitting down telling great stories. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. If you are a Mel Brooks fan, it is a must read. I just wish that, uh, I guess similarly, you know, his, his beloved second wife, Anne Bancroft, who uh, he was with for, you know, 40 years, uh, her death is essentially one paragraph. And I just, maybe it's too painful to stop with the bad stuff where he's choose yeah. not to linger on it, but it's like, mm -hmm. I, I just wish I feel like the character of Mel Brooks wrote this memoir as opposed to Mel Brooks himself, and oh. the character of Mel Brooks is wonderful. <laughs> but like, yeah, that's a good way. I, I, I kind of wish there was a little bit more under the skin there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, that's uh, that's unfortunate to hear, but um, but yeah, like you said, I mean, if people are, are in it for uh, for the stories, it sounds like they'll they'll find plenty of them in in the book. And what is it called again? It's called uh, uh, it's called uh, All About Me. All about me. Okay, great. Oh, okay, I guess the other thing, like for example. I would have loved to know why Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks never, never made a movie together after Young Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. But, that would have been. But never mentioned. Never, hmm. he, he mentioned he's trying to get Gene Wilder from their project and didn't work out because he was too busy. But, like, there's, was like, I I want to know the dirt. What happened? You know, yeah. if you want that, it's, it's not in the book. So Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's get into what we've been watching. Um, you and I both had a chance to see Steven Spielberg's new rendition of West Side Story. Jacob, what did you think about it? I think West Side Story is great, and it's incredibly sad that no one else is seeing it. Uh, you know, for for whatever reason you want to lay the blame on, you know, COVID or musicals in the wake of Cats or whatever you want to say. But I think I prefer this version to the Robert Wise version from the '60s. I think that it's so beautifully staged, and uh, it, it manages to be faithful to the text while having very smart, frequently invisible updates that make it feel. Not necessarily more palatable, but more relevant directly to a modern audience. Mm -hmm. On top of Spielberg just being just one of the best shooters in the business. No, no one makes movies that feel like his movies and him making musicals a miracle. So West Side Story is great. Like I think it's top 10 of the year. Yeah, it's also on my top 10. I, I loved it. Um, I I think like a lot of people had a lot of trepidation going into this. Like, what on earth is he thinking tackling this? But I think you're right. I think those um, Tony Kushner did the screenplay. And I think those updates, those little, um, uh, yeah, additions that you mentioned, uh, they really do serve to sort of bolster the storytelling and like uh, deepen the relationships between the characters in a way that I think... Um, I, it's really tough for me to, to because the the first movie is such a, a stone cold classic and I, I watched it again, uh, I don't know, within the last year or so and was just blown away all over again by it. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I'm ready after just one viewing to say that this one is better or, or uh, preferred in my eyes to the 1961 original, but um, certainly the, the character work uh, is, uh, is better. I think I'm, I'm comfortable saying that. Um, and uh so, so I don't know, uh, 
Rachel Zegler, who stars as Maria in the movie, I think is getting a lot of acclaim and she can, I mean, her, the set of pipes on her, she can belt it like the best of them. She's just like unbelievable. Anytime that she's asked to sing in the movie. Um, I've seen a lot of people like really, really uh, lavishly praise her performance. And I, I kind of feel like uh, in the moments when she's not singing, it kind of feels like this is her first movie. It feels like she was plucked out of, you know, uh, obscurity when she was 17 to make this film. I, I don't know um, if she like fully has the, you know, just like the the camera awareness, um, you know, that that people just gain over time with experience. Um, so there were there were a few little, uh, I don't know, wrong notes is is not uh, necessarily the most <laughs> accurate way to describe it. But um, a few little moments here and there where I was like, ah, a, a more experienced performer probably could have grappled with this material slightly better than what I thought Rachel Zegler did. Um, and then Ansel Elgort, who plays Tony in the movie, I mean, there's a whole complicated uh, series of events surrounding the real life Ansel Elgort and, and allegations made against him. And I encourage people to, to look that up and sort of uh, judge for yourself. And we don't need to get into all that here. But I thought he did a surprisingly good job uh, with the music part of this. I mean, I know he he has a background in music. He, he uh, moves a little bit like a, like a dancer at times, but also the Tony character, it seems to be kind of a... Um, the most frankly the most boring character in any version of West Side Story and I just thought he handled it about as well as he could have so I, I walked away um surprisingly uh, impressed with what Ansel Elgort was able to do with this because I'm not like a huge Elgort head or whatever but um but I, I found his work to be really effective here so uh yeah, yeah. Tony and Maria are the roles nobody actually wants to play. No, no one wants to play Tony and Maria. Everybody, everybody wants to play Anita and Riff. Those are the parts yeah. everybody actually wants. And I think that uh, Ariana, Ariana DeBose is Anita and Mike Feist is uh, Riff are actually the best performances in the movie. So. Yeah, man, just killer stuff. Great, great stuff. Um, okay, so I'll blast through a few things that I've been watching recently, Jacob. Uh, I caught up with Cyrano, which is uh, the movie that's it's actually in theaters, I think, still. Maybe it just left uh, a limited theatrical run, and then it's going to be back in theaters in a big way uh, in late January. Um, but this is the new movie from Joe Wright, the director of films like Atonement and Hannah. And this is a musical uh based on the Cyrano de Bergerac story that stars Peter Dinklage and Haley Bennett and Kelvin Harrison Jr. And the Cyrano story is one that we've seen a bunch of times. Um, I think the half of it was a, a Netflix uh, sort of rom-com version of this that we saw within the last couple of years. Um, it's been, you know, uh, riffed on a bunch of different times. And this version is, uh, is basically like the equivalent of uh, what if Cyrano, but as a 1990s music video, <laughs> like uh, um, it definitely has big music video energy in it. And um, whether or not you enjoy, you know, the videos for like total eclipse of the heart and like, you know, those sort of like, uh, you know, uh, wind whipping a uh, lot of uh, atmosphere and like, um, sheer curtains swinging in the breeze. Like if you like that kind of uh, vibe, then this movie is like that, but with, uh, with, uh, you know, a, a lot of fun at the center of it. Um, Peter Dinklage is, is very, very good here. I mean, he, I, it feels weird to say that he was trapped in game of Thrones for so many years because he was doing other stuff and, um, and he was great on Game of Thrones. He was, uh, you know, uh, a, frequently the best part of whatever episode he was in. But um, I, I'm glad that he's no longer on that show because it means that he can do projects like this. So I, I am curious to see what the wide reaction is going to be to Cyrano when it comes out, because it's like maybe a little bit too earnest for its own good at, at certain moments. But I think there's a lot of artistry here on display that uh, that makes it worth watching. And Dinklage's performance is sort of uh, anchors the whole thing is um is really good and really worth watching so uh, jacob do you have any interest in in this one have you seen any trailers or anything this is actually one where i've managed not to see any trailers for it uh i don't know why they happened but it's just one of those cases where <laughs> that's how it, that's how things fell uh i know that from what i've seen the general i've seen some pretty all over the place reactions to this movie but everybody seems to agree that dinklage is incredible in it which you know as on one hand, great to hear. On the other hand, not surprising at all. The Peter Dinklage is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he kills it. It's it's definitely worth watching for his performance alone. Um, Seamus McGarvey also shot this movie, and he's I mean he shot like uh, Atonement, and he shot The Soloist, and Anna Karenina, and uh, Nocturnal Animals, and Bad Times at the El Royale, and 
the Avengers of all things. So like uh, it, it looks really good too. So uh, yeah, that is Cyrano. It's going to be out in wide release uh, later on in January. And then I also caught up with Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, which is a movie that's not a lot of people are seeing because it's basically tanking at the box office, just like West Side Story. It's, it's one of those that uh, feels like in a just world, a lot of people would be having you know big conversations about this movie. I watched the original film, which came out in the late 40s, uh, within the, again, within the last year or two, and really enjoyed it. And this movie is, uh, is better. I'm, I'm comfortable after one viewing for this one, saying that I enjoyed this film more. Bradley Cooper is, is great uh, in the lead role. I think... His performance is, um, it really, uh, there's a, there's a, let's see, what's, what's a good way to say this without spoiling, spoiling anything. Um, I, I would say the back half of his performance, there, there's a, a propulsiveness to his performance where it's it sort of, um, it, it is like he is on a freight train and you can feel the the movie and his performance gaining steam as the film goes on and uh, where it ends is just, um, it's, it's just perfect. It's one of the most perfect endings of any movie in 2021. So uh, Kate Blanchett feels like she stepped right out of a, a film noir from the forties or fifties or something. She's just like incredible in this movie. Um, the, the whole cast, I mean, it has like one of the best casts of the year and everybody is just doing great stuff. And, and this feels like uh, it's a real dark movie, Jacob. It's, it's, I remember thinking that the first film was pretty dark and this one, is even darker and uh, it really feels like del Toro is just willing to sort of plumb the depths of the darkness that comes with um, the aspiration at, at the center of this story. It's about this, this guy who becomes uh, who joins a, a traveling carnival and uh, learns the art of mentalism and decides that he uh, wants to strike out on his own and, and try to, you know, pull one over and, and make as much money as uh, possible off of, you know, the rich people in, in the big city kind of thing. So um, it's a movie about ambition and, and aspiration and uh, greed and desire. And uh, it, it feels like a, a Del Toro movie through and through, which is great. And um, man, the again, the ending of this movie is just like absolutely one for the books. So uh, uh, my, you, my quick question, when you say that it's darker than the, the original movie, uh, I know I'm not sure if you've read the novel or not, which I, I haven't either, but does it feel like it's a result of, del toro being able to bring the story to its potential or is or or, or is it him just making it darker because he can't because it's you know 60 years later yeah i have not read the book but i understand that the book is a little bit darker than the first film and this feels uh yeah it does not feel like dark for the sake of being dark or or dark for the sake of uh del toro sort of exploring the the sort of um monster monster aesthetic that he is so known for it really feels like him just leaning into uh, the worst of mankind and, and sort of what can happen when, um, <laughs> when a vision gets corrupted basically. And it's just uh man, it, it's just like so expertly done on a craft level. Like every single set feels like incredible and the, the design and the, um, you know, the, the look, the cinematography all the way through. I mean, we have interviews up with the production designer and the cinematographer on, on slashfilm.com. And if you get a chance to see this movie, which I implore you to do, um, I encourage you also to go read those reviews because it's it's really great to hear, uh, you know, directly from the people who are contributing to um, such a, a glorious looking movie. And, and it's t- it's weird to call this movie glorious because the tone is not that at all. Um, but man, just like from a, a, a pure craft perspective and, um, you know, a, a Del Toro movie uh, with a capital M, the Nightmare Alley, it sort of checks all the boxes that I wanted from it. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to catch. I've I've been very busy these past few weeks with uh, holiday stuff and work stuff. So getting out to see this has been a pain, especially since uh, for, for reasons have been widely reported, it's bombing and showtimes are being kind of shoved aside a lot of theaters. But I'm I feel very very horrible that I have not seen this yet because it has everything I want in a movie from the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also rewatched the Matrix trilogy before watching the Matrix Resurrections. Um, Jacob, have you not had a chance to see the Matrix Resurrections yet either? No, I know because of holiday travel, I I could have watched an HBO Max, but I said I want to see it in the theater. So mm, um, okay, but so but every showing in Austin at my preferred theaters uh, haven't sold out. So I'm still looking wow. for a okay. window. To, yeah, I'm looking for a window to see it uh, properly. 
Well, that's good news for the movie, I think, um, because it's it's getting a very divisive response. That first film is just like an all time classic, like a, it's a perfect. full on banger. Yeah, exactly. It's a perfect like, movie. Like this, literally, there are there's Die Hard and there's Matrix when it comes to, like perfect action movies, or in the case of sci fi action movie. Yeah, it's so. Um, I think a big part of the reason that it works so well is that it it sort of sets up uh, a world for the Neo character to enter. And once he crosses that threshold, whatever it is, 20 or 30 minutes into the movie, um, he is like fully on that side. Once he takes the red pill, he is fully in that world and immersed in that world. And, uh, you know, you're learning along with him about the the new rules of that world, but it's very clear that he is on, he's through the looking glass. Um, I would say that in the matrix resurrections, that line is blurred a little bit. And I think it's to the movie's detriment. Like I, I know the movie is getting a lot of, uh, it's a very divisive film right now. It takes a lot of big swings. I kind of love it for that. Um, it, it definitely feels like a Lana, a Lana Wachowski movie in that, uh, it has like, don't give a fuck energy and it just is going for it in a, in a really huge way. And there's some stuff, there are some moments in this movie that I was like, that completely took me aback. Like, Oh wow, we're doing this. Okay, sure. Um, so yeah, from a uh, from a again like a craft perspective, I think this movie looks terrific. The the uh, you know the the visual component is is certainly there. The design element is certainly there. Um, but the on a on a story level, a pure narrative level, I think there's some confusion uh, that um, that the that Wachowski certainly wants the audience to experience. But comparing it back to that first movie where. Uh, you sort of feel like your mind is blown, but it's very clear what's going on at all times. It just feels a little sloppier and a little messier. Um, and so I'm very curious to see what you think about it when you see it, Jacob. I don't want to say anything more than that just because um, I, I don't want to spoil anything. But uh, th- there's a lot about this movie that I really, really love and a lot that I'm sort of left scratching my head about. So um, I, I think it's fine to have that reaction. I think it's it's totally okay to... Uh, to have a complex reaction to a movie that is certainly dealing with a lot and has a lot on its mind. Um, we so often fall into this like, oh, it either rules or it sucks category. And I, I think this movie, maybe more than a lot of others, um, is like the perfect example of why uh, you can hold more than one thought in your head at once. So um, yeah, when you see it, I, I would love to have you back on uh you know, for a, an in-depth conversation about it, because there's definitely a lot to get into. So, as, um, a, as a fan of Cloud Atlas, Jupiter Ascending, and Speed Racer, I am all about Wachowski uh, energy. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> I feel like I'm probably the target audience for what this movie's dealing. Um, so I'll, I'll check back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I also caught up with Encanto last night. This movie is on uh, streaming on Disney Plus right now. And um, it's the new movie from uh, Jared Bush and Byron Howard, who directed uh, Zootopia a few years ago. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda did the music for this movie, uh, sort of capping off an insane, an insanely productive year for for him. Uh, I didn't care for this movie. I'm I'm sad to say that this one was like a, an almost total bust for me. Um, you and my nephew both, Ben. Really? Okay, so... My, 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 my five-year-old nephew who likes everything... Uh, watching Kanto and said, not good. Yeah, I just, I feel um, conflicted about it because the the uh, uh, the aesthetic and the setting and the premise are so strong, but the execution and, uh, yeah, I just, like the, the music, I, I so... It's a it's a Disney musical a, a, from Walt Disney Animation Studios. I mean, there is a long, long history of incredible music in uh, in that sort of corner of the Mouse House. And for me, the music in this movie was like a total miss. Like there was not a single song that I connected with or left uh, left my couch after watching it humming. Or you know, I don't I don't expect to like have all of the lyrics to you know these songs memorized after one view, but even something like Moana, like it had a couple songs that had a catchy hook or, you know, something to, to sort of latch onto as a viewer. And Every I just, Moana song is great. I listen to that soundtrack still. So this is very disappointing to hear that they, they didn't strike twice. Yeah. It's, it's a, it was a real bummer for me. And I'm, I know that, you know, the, the movie has its supporters and I'm, I'm just curious, like I want to have like a big spoiler conversation with somebody about uh, where the, the story goes and like the, 
the conflict in this movie and um, and sort of the the resolution of it. I just I found the entire thing to be like really really underwhelming. And when none of the music works, that's a, a real big strike against a movie musical. So it, it's um, it just made it like uh, feel like it was trying to push a, a rock uphill, you know, and it just, it couldn't get there for me. So um, yeah, th- um, I was disappointed with Encanto, but um, I'm curious if, uh, if other people love it, I, w- I would love to hear why. And maybe I'd, I'd be, um, you know, willing to look at it from another perspective or something, but. I know uh, HD was pretty warm on it. So you should probably have her on this to have the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to do that. Okay. Uh, so the last thing that I watched is a movie called Bell, Book and Candle. Have you ever heard of this Jacobs from the, the late fifties? I know the title. I've never seen it. Yeah. So Jimmy Stewart and uh, Kim Novak star in this movie. They, this came out in 1958, the same year as Vertigo. This actually came out uh, a couple months after Vertigo. And um, it's it's a way different movie. It's a, a fantasy romantic comedy is how Wikipedia describes it. And it's um, uh, Kim Novak plays a witch who is living in New York City. And she essentially casts a spell on her neighbor who is played by Jimmy Stewart and, and sort of falls in love with him or, or gets him to fall in love with her. And it's sort of this like little uh, farcical rom-com uh, that is set around the Christmas season. Uh, Jack Lemon plays uh, Kim Novak's character's brother. And uh, it's just a, a really pleasant, delightful little movie. So, um, you know, if you're looking for like more uh, more witch films in your life and something that maybe uh, you could add into your uh, holiday uh, viewing rotation that is not, you know, Chris and I had a big episode a couple of weeks ago talking about like the big um, alternative Christmas movies, like films that that uh, you don't necessarily see in heavy rotation on, on you know, in, in people's uh, everyday lives around the holidays. And I think this one would be a good sort of off the, the beaten path um, kind of movie to, to toss into the mix here and there. So uh, that is called Bell, Book and Candle. And I watched it um, on, I think it was on AMC. So uh, speaking of holiday movies, I didn't put this in the doc, Ben. So forgive me, forgive the diversion. Uh, but is there a Christmas movie you watch every year without fail? Every year without fail. Um, well, uh, my wife grew up watching um, a Muppet Family Christmas, which is essentially like the Avengers of uh, of like the it's it's the Muppets and the characters from Sesame Street and the characters from um, Fraggle Rock all coming together. And it was tough to find for a little bit. I had to buy it for on uh, DVD like several years ago. And so uh, you know when when we had that in our our joint lives together we've been watching that every single year um and i feel like i feel like that's the only one oh maybe the um the animated frosty the snowman uh because it's so short um but all the other ones i feel like if i miss a year here and there i can just catch it the next time around and i'm not like precious about it but um those those two i feel like are the ones that uh over the past i don't know let's call it six seven eight years i feel like we've not skipped either of those I ended up watching Muppet Christmas Carol two and a half times over the holidays. Um, and just because I realized that I probably have seen that every single year since the VHS in, in the early nineties. Like I, yeah. I, I probably never skipped a year where I, where I watched it at least once. And I don't know, that movie holds, the movie holds up. And I know like it's a big millennial thing to say Muppet Christmas Carol is great, but Muppet Christmas Carol is really great. And, <laughs> and I know that um watching it again, like in my, in my new TV setup, um, I realized that, this movie is not only a great movie, it's really well made. The production design, the creature design, the lighting, the performances, its the acting from the human actors, it's all really good. I know that there's this really curmudgeonly um, Gen Z reaction to, to Muppet Christmas Carol about how, oh, it's not our Muppets because it's you know post-Jim Henson. But in terms of actual cinematic craft, I think Brian Henson kind of outdirected his father on his Muppet movies with this one. Wow, man. Yeah, it's been a few years since I've seen that. I wanted to watch... Uh, Muppet Christmas Carol this year, but because we, uh, I, I kind of forgot about the Matrix coming out, so like uh, cramming in that original trilogy took up took up a lot of uh, otherwise like viewing time that otherwise would have been devoted to holiday viewing uh, this year. So um, maybe next year I'll be able to plan a little bit better and make more carve out more space for uh, for films like that. So um, Muppet Christmas Carol, I think, is still streaming on Disney Plus right now. People want to yeah, check it out like, immediately post holiday. So next year is a forty, sorry, thirtieth anniversary. So uh, people are hoping, like me, that they'll restore that song that was cut from the theatrical version and reinstated into the VHS that I watched endlessly as a kid, and <laughs> is now missing and feels wrong still. So 
Gotcha. All right. Well, Jacob, I'm really jealous of, uh, of this first movie that you uh, are about to talk about here because I still have not had a chance to see it yet. Um, but yeah, what do um, you think? It's, it's, it's this little movie that no one's had a chance. Like no one has had a chance yet. It's like super <laughs> limited release. Like really like very few people have seen it called Spider-Man Far uh, no, no Way Home. Yeah. Um, Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, you know, uh, this tangent, I still write Spider-Man Far From Home regularly on Unslashable <laughs> Business instead of No Way Home. It just happens. Um, but yeah, um, you know, masked up, right theater, you know, if you feel safe, if you feel, if you feel, if you feel safe um, to do so, you, you know, like the millions who already have, you can go see Spider-Man No Way Home. And uh, Ben, I regret to inform you because I know sometimes we get, sometimes in our, in our business where we have to see everything and talk about everything and write about everything, we get really jaded about superhero stuff. It's like, oh God, sometimes I wish we'd take a break. Uh, Spider-Man No Way Home is really, really terrific. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm excited about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes there can be like a a sense of dread for movies like that, because as much as we, I think you and I both like generally like a lot of the Marvel stuff, um, but there sometimes can just, there can be like a, I know a lot of, you know, just like pure audience members and and listeners to this podcast probably are just like uh, waiting ravenously for each new um, wave of, of MCU stuff. But sometimes like you and I, I feel like, we can feel a little ground down by just the the ever presentness of it, like the the fact that it just sort of seems to eat up every single other conversation out there. Because um, it becomes see. our job. I think I think when people uh, who get frustrated by our, by our grumpiness about this sometimes, they understand that it's our it, this is our job, and the fact that like I'd say about forty five percent of my job is looking at Marvel and Star Wars stories. It's like let's figure out how we can write that up if ever like i love this stuff to death but man i think i think we've earned the right to be a little grumpy about it (laughs) yeah yeah so it's great i mean with all of that said like that is the the backdrop to to what we're talking about here it's great that you love the movie because i also really liked the the previous two tom holland movies and there's no reason uh except for maybe my trepidation about a potential of too many villains or, or the movie just being like a little bit too overstuffed there's no reason that i shouldn't like no way home so i'm glad to hear that you've really enjoyed it no it, it does i don't want to go into spoilers since you haven't seen it but it it does a really fantastic job with with the central conceit of each previous spider-man franchise being its own separate universe and them all you know merging together the results are incredibly satisfying and uh, it's it part part of the fun of it. Even stuff that doesn't quite work, I, um, I had fun with because you watch, you realize that some of the special guest stars who show up, like the ones who you know, I'm assuming you know about, like um, Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe, mm-hmm. show up and they bring the goods. They like they're like just like absolutely there to do the job and do it well. But then like Jamie Foxx and Reese Fawn are like, eh. So so like they're just there. <laughs> and, and to me, uh, rather than be a bug, it became a feature of me just having a great time sort of in, in, mentally internally ranking how much the, the guest stars gave a shit <laughs> uh, but on top of that it, it's a really good screenplay that manages to, to balance all these many many subplots and characters the stuff that's not in the trailers is so good i mean my audience went nuts there's stuff in there that we discuss our favorite moments of the year uh, for our big annual list next year um i'm, I'm sorry i'll spoil it for you ben since you're in florida and you can't go to movie theaters ever again um yeah i'm i'm really hoping that i'll be able to see it before then i know we're going to record that episode in like a couple weeks or something so yeah fingers crossed things will get a little bit better or at least better enough around here where i can just like maybe sneak into like a 10 p.m showing when nobody else is in there or something but we'll see yeah i mean there's a case where like part of my job means that you know i know a lot of spoilers um but just because things float around on the internet and we see them or hear from a friend who tells us something that's going on. So I go into a lot of movies knowing a lot of the secrets already. That's just the nature of my job. Even if it's not spoiled for me outright, like someone will see it at early screening for the site and I'll get in a private conversation and say, hey, tell me details so we can plan coverage properly. And that's my job. It's it's my job to make sure that we can serve the reader, serve the listener. So I have a lot of movies spoiled for me. Uh, and I kind of, and, so, and, I, and I had some of the big reveals and No Way Home spoiled for me. But hearing the people whose jobs aren't, writing about movies, hearing them react to the reveals and knowing home mm-hmm. was, a re- was a reminder that COVID may slow down theaters, but, but they're not dead because we're all going to want that again. And it was such a special reaction here. People so overjoyed by what no way home was delivering. And I think it, it delivers that joy really, really well. Um, in that it's also couched in a really effective moving story that I think really gets the really hammers home what Spider-Man is all about more so than the previous Holland movies. Um, and where this movie leaves Peter Parker, uh, without getting into spoilers, is something that has me super interested. I know looking toward the future of sequels is, is you know, with MCU is kind of, you know, kind of annoying. It's like, oh, we're always looking ahead instead of looking, instead of looking at the movie itself. Mm-hmm. But it manages to 
leave Peter Parker in a place that is that showcases a real a real keen understanding of who Spider Man is, who P- Peter Parker is, and I'm it, it went from me feeling like okay, we're probably ready to move on from Paul Holland, right, to like to me going okay, I want more Tom Holland Spider Man because I, mm. I, I I see I see what's going now, and I look forward to you talking about that with you, Ben. But it's um. I know there's been so much chatter about you know how Nightmare Alley is bombing, about how people movies made for adults aren't doing well. Matrix Resurrections, which is you know day and date on HBO Max, is you know not doing numbers. It probably could have if it was if it was theatrical only. And meanwhile, everybody's really bemoaning how um, Spider Man just crossed a billion dollars in you know two weeks. And part of me is upset about that. Part of me is upset that West Side Story bombed and that you know Nightmare Alley is you know being overlooked. Uh, but part of me is like, it's been the worst two years of a lot of the world's life. Mm-hmm. And Spider-Man: No Way Home delivers a really emotionally cathartic uh, story about self-responsibility, while also just being pure joy. It is such a joyous movie that uh, couches that, like, manages to combine that joy with 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 a real emotional catharsis that kind of comes out of nowhere and hits harder than you think it would if I even if I described what happens out loud. And I think that's what people want. Is what people needed right now. And yeah, I think people will find that morality at home. I think I think he'll stream, he'll stream. People will say this is great. Why didn't we watch it in theaters? Oh yeah, COVID. Uh, we we didn't want to go see a movie about you know man's inhumanity to man. You know, during, right. during COVID. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I, I can't be mad. Spider Man making making a billion dollars in two weeks because this feels very much like what the doctor ordered in terms of a pop culture thing that people really really needed right now. So that's my two cents on that entire conversation. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that you loved it. Um, you also started watching a show that's been on for, what, six, seven years or something at this point? I've never seen an episode of the show. What did you think about uh, Peaky Blinders, Jacob? I'm in the middle of season three of Peaky Blinders, and this show was recommended to me by a lot of people, saying it's a lot of fun, and which is a really gripping crime story. And as somebody who, you know, just finished watching The Sopranos, but has a real soft spot for period crime dramas. Like, I love I love suits and hats, you know, and Tommy guns. Uh, I love Boardwalk Empire. I thought I'd give this a shot. I and love he, yeah. suits and hats. That's great. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the, the sixth and final season premieres next year. Then doing a TV movie to wrap it all up. Um, so, uh, and since this is a BBC production, that's it, it, it's also on Netflix now. It, you know, sometimes skips a year or two between seasons. So even though it's been around since 2014, but there's only been five seasons. The sixth one coming up soon. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a crime show. Set in Birmingham, uh, in in England, in the for, at start start the, the late nineteen teens, in the five years after sorry, not years, a few years after World War One has ended, and stretches you know into the nineteen twenties and beyond as the seasons go on, and it follows the Peaky Blinders, this uh, uh this Romani Irish uh, gang, uh, like a street gang, uh, living in Birmingham, who are try- in the first season are essentially scraping by as petty crooks. They're they run a legal gambling circuit. They you know uh they're they're tough guys. They're thugs. They're, they, uh, they, their whole thing is they, they uh, have razor blades sewn into the lids of their caps, so they literally always have like weapon. Like they're literally wearing the weapons on their mm-hmm. heads. And uh, Cillian Murphy uh, is, or Killian Murphy. I can't. Ben, correct me. Is it Cillian Murphy or Killian Murphy? I think it's Killian, but yeah, I've I've right. always had trouble with that name as well. Uh, Killian Murphy. He's the, he's the lead here, and he's the um, melon melancholic man of few words tactical genius uh, leader of the crime family who has to you know corral his hot-headed brothers listen to advice from his um aunt who ran the crime family while the boys were off in world war one uh and essentially trying to raise him up from the muck raise him up from being this you know really overlooked um gang to like a powerful force on like not just the criminal stage but the ultimate goal of being a complete legit business pulling the family out of you know out of out of crime and into something legit um and the first season is okay. Yeah, I, I it, it feels very low budget. It looks really low budget shot and a lot of suffocating close ups as it clearly is trying to hide the lack of sets and budgets at times. But there's definitely something there. I mean, um, what I did not realize before this is that the soundtrack is all modern songs. It's set in you know 1920s Birmingham, but like uh, the the, the uh, theme song is uh, Nick Cave's Red Right Hand, and it uses frequent modern blues and rock music uh, as its as its um. Uh, is a soundtrack, so it has that a very modern feeling vibe to it. Uh, and by season two, I was hooked in a pretty big way because I don't know what I don't know exactly what happened between season one and two, but clearly they got a massive budget increase. In season two, it went from being a show that looked like a BBC production to a show that looks like it belongs on HBO in terms of uh, special effects, uh, 
you know, cinematography, action scenes, uh, guest stars. I mean, Tom Hardy uh, 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 is like is like a key guest star in season two, for example. And like if you look at the IMDb list, like the number of people who pop up to play you know villains for, for seasons is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure it's a deep show. I'm not too sure like what it has to say beyond you know, you know, um, these guys came from World War One, they came back damaged, and now they do more, and now they damage each other all over again. But in, in a new world of crime. Uh, I, I think it's a bit shallow uh, in terms of th- thematic like underpinnings, but man, Ben, it's so good. <laughs> if you just want uh, Killian Murphy in a suit, smoking a cigarette, uh, walking in slow motion uh, to Nick Cave songs through 1922 Birmingham while plotting violence, Peaky Blinders is the show for you. <laughs> it is, uh, it is style as substance uh, and characters who are really well written. As much as I can complain about, I don't think it's a deep show. Like the character writing and the dynamics and the um, uber violent soapy plotting of it is incredibly addictive and entertaining and it yeah i like i said i'm not going to sit here and say it's as complex or as deep as sopranos but it absolutely is extremely entertaining to watch these to watch incredible actors look really cool uh two really good songs while they try to plot their ways out of increasingly violent and you know uh dangerous situations uh, Peaky blinders uh, first five seasons on netflix i'm really enjoying it it seems like a, uh, a sort of a prototype type of series for um, Gangs of London. Did you ever see Gangs of London? I think it was like on AMC Plus, the Gareth was, Evans yeah, yeah. action show. Yeah, I, I wanted to, uh, but AMC Plus made that a very difficult yeah. thing. Yeah, same. I never ended up seeing it, but the way that you're describing Peaky Blinders sounds a lot like what I've heard uh, heard tell of Gangs of London. So, um, yeah, I mean, Peaky Blinders is one of the shows that's been sitting in my Netflix queue for probably five years, and I just have never Same. gotten around to starting it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, the fact that it has a bit of a slow start is not uh, necessarily, like, you know, going to move it immediately to the top of my list, but it's probably one of those things that I'll get around to eventually. So I will say that um, since it's an English show, a UK show, there are, there are six episode seasons. So it's not like you have to, like, waste 13 hours you'll have to get through season one even season one's okay season one is perfectly fine but i was like but i was thinking this is fun i don't know why people are obsessed with it and, but in and season two is where i said oh oh well okay so. the fact that you said it's six episode seasons that actually does move it up my list a lot because uh i have not even gone into the part of looking to see how many episodes there were in a season and that uh that actually is it makes it a lot easier to uh to digest so yeah uh, in fact it's, it's a british show there's six episodes and there's no fat like e-, e episodes are just complete plot from beginning to middle sorry from beginning to end uh there's there's absolutely no room for padding it doesn't have that netflix issue of 13 episodes stretched kicking and screaming it just nothing feels padded on picky blinders it's it's all things are things are happening constantly in picky blinders all right well that might be a 2022 show for me so uh what have you been playing jacob let's move into that section yeah i want to recommend two board games i want to recommend a unfathomable uh ben are you familiar at all with the legendary battlestar galactica board game i am not no uh fancy flight games a a, a one of the uh most popular and prestigious board game companies in the world uh 15 or so years ago who made a Battlestar Galactica board game based on the uh, sci-fi channel reboot of the, of the classic sci-fi show. Did you ever watch the rebooted Battlestar Galactica, Ben? I did not. I, I've heard such good things about it, but that's another one that's sort of like been hovering my queue for a long time and I've just not pulled the trigger on it. Anyway, this was a game which we said at a time where uh, licensed board games were considered, you know, trash. Like no, if, if it had like a familiar name on it, you know, Clearly, it was a rush job. Clearly, it was a uh, you know trying to kind of cash in someone's fans. And Battlestar Galactica kind of opened the door to show what a licensed game could be. It felt so much like that show. Uh, everybody's working together on board Battlestar Galactica. That the ship is a cooperative game, trying to keep the population of the ship alive, trying to keep everybody fed, trying to make sure political situations are resolved while being chased by Cylons. You know the uh, evil robots that want to destroy humanity. But it was a hidden trader game. Uh, one or two people at the table were secret traders who were secret Cylons posing as humans who were trying to undermine the co-op game. So it was it, it was an incredibly intense and tense game where people, you would do something wrong by accident. And someone would say, why'd you do that? It became a game of like defending yourself when you were innocent, mm-hmm. knowing that somebody mm-hmm. else at the table is a Cylon. Maybe they're, are they accusing you because they're a Cylon trying to throw pressure on you or, <laughs> or it's a misunderstanding. And it was just this incredible game that really captured the flavor of the show of, of, of trying to, you know, work, survive in military and political uh, you know, cluster cuss while, while there are traitors in the midst. And uh, it's long out of print now. And, uh, and the reason why I'm saying all this is that 
Fantasy Flight no longer has the rights to the Battlestar Galactica uh, name. Also, it's a show that's you know 15 years beyond its relevancy. Uh, but they retain the rights to the game design, uh, if not the name of Bowser Galactica. So they have repackaged and updated uh, those rules. The rules set for Bowser Galactica do unfathomable. So this is, it's a legendary board game design with a, with a new theme and a new name. And unfathomable is set in the uh, Arkham Horror universe that Fantasy Flight owns. Arkham Horror is um, their uh, Lovecraft-inspired horror universe for uh, where mm. they have like various... Uh, a game set in 1920s, you know, um, 1920 world 1920s, where you're, uh, you know, trying to fight cultists and monsters. And the theme of Unfathomable is that you're all passengers or crew members on board a steamship, uh, a steamship, a luxury cruiser, uh, heading from England to the United States. And uh, somebody on board uh, has summoned giant monsters from the deep who are trying to destroy the ship. And you don't know who those secret cultists are, but you want to make sure the ship gets to Boston safely. So you're trying to get the ship across the ocean. While people on board are secretly undermining you, while trying to you know protect the protect uh, people on board the ship, while trying to uh, put down all kinds of bad situations, and to me as somebody who played the Battle Galactica board game a lot and loved it, uh, but also loves you know horror theming, this was perfect for me because it's one of the greatest rule sets of all time now applied to a horror game as opposed to you know a, a sci-fi game. So uh, unfathomable. If you've ever heard of the Battle Galactica board game and have wondered what the big deal was or why I couldn't buy it anymore. That's why it's unfathomable now. It's an, exp- <laughs> it's, it's an expensive game. It is like an $80 game, but it's also a game where you're uh, Fancy Flight puts together nice games. So they're, they're, the component quality is, un- is untouched. It has, you know, everything looks nice. It feels nice. The art is perfect. Um, so if, if it's, it's also a bit of a heavier game. It's not like something you can play it casually with your mom or, or, or it's like, you know, if people just want to drink and have a good time. You, get, you kind of have to read that rule book and go with a group of people who are willing to, you know, sort of really roll into the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is for me, the release of 2021, the board game release of 2021, because you know, it, it literally is one of the great board game rules of all time. It's just been, you know, rethemed and I highly wow. recommend Unfathomable. Okay. And there's one more too, right? Oh uh, yeah. I was sent an early copy of Unmatched Battle of Legends Volume 2. I have written about Unmatched for Slash Film before when I occasionally do some tabletop coverage. Unmatched is a uh, board game series of collaboration between Restoration Games and Mondo. Uh, Restoration Games is a company that specializes in buying the rights to older um, older game designs, like uh, rule sets, and sprucing them up, um, updating them for modern times, and uh, repackaging them. So kind of similar to what Fantasy Flight did with Unfathomable, but it's a company built around that. And it teamed up with Mondo, you know, the, the uh, art and collectibles company, uh, for Unmatched. And the idea behind Unmatched is that uh, it's a series of board games that can all be intermingled or, or standalone, where people from various corners of literature and mythology all fight it out like for example the first box ever released was battle of legends volume one and that was like sinbad and king arthur and medusa and then they released cobble and fog which is a set that we, we actually wrote about in slash film in a preview where they had invisible man and dracula and sherlock holmes uh we are in in the restoration games handles those ones personally um while mondo and their, their licensing uh arm go out and they, and they release expansions that are built around jurassic park they have jurassic park expansion or slash actually last year or year before uh exclusively revealed that they're doing a series of Marvel sets coming out next year, a bunch of Marvel characters being added into it. So the fun of Unmatched is that it's this combat game where you play these characters running around various maps to trying to literally be the last one standing. But you have Sherlock Holmes versus the Raptors in Jurassic Park. You can have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you can have King Arthur versus Buffy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, uh, Invisible Man versus Bruce Lee, you know. Uh, uh, and this new set is like the Battle of Legends Volume 2. It's more public domain characters from world mythology, essentially. And it's, uh, remember the top of my head, uh, Sun Wukong from Chinese mythology, Yenenga from um, African mythology, Achilles from Greek mythology, and uh, Bloody Mary the uh, from, you know, uh, whatever mythology Bloody Mary emerged from. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a very fun selection of characters. And even though you can mix it, think about Unmatched, you can mix and match any set you want. You can, like, take any characters and fight them against anybody else, um, you know, with two to four players. But... I've been playing this box solo, just these four characters. I'm interviewing designers for Slash Film soon. I want to, you know, get to come grips with all of them. And this is a really good set. Whether you're a fan of Unmatched already, and you want new characters, uh, or you want to just get a solo set and just play with a couple characters to see if you like them or are happy with just that or want to add more to your collection, these characters play really, really well. They're really, really fun. I'm having a great time with them. And the combination of Restoration Games doing 
uh, like impeccable game design and that being their specialty combined with Mondo being able to get character licenses and being able to, you know, source artists to do the best card art you've ever seen. I, I no no hand of cards was more beautiful than hand of unmatched cards. Uh, it's just, a, it's a match made in heaven. I've, I've talked about unmatched before on this podcast, I think, and on slash mm-hmm. It's my, it's my top five favorite board games of all time. Uh, it's really simple. It, well, like, but it's simple, but deep, like you can teach it in, in five, in less than five minutes, but it uh it plays differently for, for no matter which character you're playing as but who you're playing up against so I, I don't know i think simple but deep is my favorite type of game design where you manage to say i can teach this really quickly but then there are infinite options for how you choose to play it and that's how unmatched feels and they've in battle of legends volume 2 does not break that it feels like it slides right into it and i'm i'm on board with this game series forever probably Man, that sounds really, really fun. I love the idea of just like these, you know, completely disparate characters going up against each other and just like the, the chaos and uh, and fun that can come from generating that. Um, Jacob, it will probably su- not surprise you in the least, considering how big of a fan of this franchise I am, that for Christmas I was gifted a, a copy of Fast and Furious Highway Heist, the board game set in the Fast and Furious franchise. <laughs> Do you know anything about this? Have you ever heard of this? I believe it or not, I've heard it's good. Okay, that's great uh, news. I've not had a chance to play it yet. I just wanted to put it on your on your radar and see if, uh, or, I, or actually pick your brain to see if you'd ever heard anything about it. But I there is I'm trying to remember. I'm going to Google this, to make sure I'm not doing anything stupid. Um, <laughs> because for all I know, there, there are board game people listening who can, who will know who will scream if I'm wrong. So I'm going to <laughs> Google this to make sure I'm right. Um, come on, internet, don't fail me now. Yeah, I'm pretty. <laughs> okay, here we go. I, I am 99 certain that uh, that game was designed by Prospero Hall. Who is actually a really well-regarded game designer? Who uh, it is? Been, yeah, it's yeah. his name is on the front of the the box. So uh, Prospero Hall, uh, if you, uh, I've played some of his other games. He's a good designer, and I've almost picked up a few times because he's because because his name is on it. So I I want you to report back to me, Ben. I'm curious about this one. Yeah, I really never talk about anything in the what we've been playing section, but now I have a new board game. So uh, once I convince my wife to play this with me, I mean, it shouldn't take too much convincing. She enjoys, we actually did a whole uh, board game thing a few years ago and got a bunch of good two-player games and stuff. So we just need to like find the time to actually do it. So uh, yeah, I, maybe uh, in between now and New Year's, um, we'll we'll carve out a couple hours to play this and I'll, I'll definitely report back, Jacob, let you know, but um, all right, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all of these stories uh, and, and sort of projects and properties that we mentioned at, uh, on today's show at SlashFilm.com, of course, and linked inside the show notes for this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs... Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.